Right, good morning, uh, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Munir Majid, and I'd like to welcome you to this kickoff session uh, of the LSE Forum. And suitably, this kickoff session is looking at the context within which Asia exists and the problems and issues it might face even as it seeks to grow and rise. And in this particular session, we have with us Professor Arnie Westard, who is Professor of History as well as Director of LSE Ideas. Arnie is a leading expert on China, and his last book, The Restless Empire, China and the World Since 1750, won the Bernard Short's Prize, book prize. And if you haven't, hadn't read the book, I'm not saying you should buy it, but if you hadn't read it, <laughs> if you hadn't read it, you must read it. And as director of LSE Ideas, which is just over six years old, he has brought it to a peak of achievement, which has been recognized. Indeed, Ideas has been recognized as the second leading think tank, university-linked think tank in the world. Now, don't ask me who's first. I forget. <laughs> now, Arnie will lead the discussion this morning in 20 minutes, and we have to be very strict about timekeeping, after which we have two respondents on the one hand, we will have Professor Tao Wengqiao, the influential Professor Tao, from the Institute of American Studies and the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Professor Tao will be followed by my old friend, Hassan Wirajuda, still influential, former Minister of Foreign Affairs of Indonesia. And after Arnie's 20 minutes, the respondents will speak for 10 minutes each, after which, in time-honored LSE fashion, we will open it to the floor. And when we do so, please be direct, don't make speeches, to get more chance and time for people to bring up issues that would have arisen as a result of the presentations or, indeed, that you may have, which is new and not being brought to the discussion. Therefore, I look forward to your participation for the last half an hour of our session after the 40 minutes of the presentations by the main speaker, Arnie Westart, and the two respondents. So on that note, may I quickly invite Arnie to set the scene. Arnie. Thank you very much, Munir. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be back in KL, to be back in Malaysia. Uh, I often confess this freely. Uh, it's one of my favorite countries, and it is, it is great to have a chance to address you all this morning. My thanks to Munir for chairing this session. Munir is much too modest to mention his own central significance in terms of the building of LSE Ideas, uh, the LSE Center for International Affairs, Diplomacy, and Strategy. He's been a key participant in the building of that center from the very beginning. 
and I'm extremely grateful to him for chairing, for his kind words of introduction. I'm also very grateful to my old friends, Professor Tao Wenjiao, who I've known for more than 25 years now, and uh, uh, Dr. Hassan Virajuda, the former Indonesian foreign minister, who I've also known for quite some time, and who has been, as all of you here will know, a very influential builder for the international structure within this region. So my main topic today takes off very directly from where Prime Minister Najib's opening speech ended, on the note of change, of change happening very fast on a global scale. And change is happening nowhere faster than what it is within this region in a very broad sense. And one of the great privileges of my career and my life has been to follow this development in Asia, and particularly in Eastern Asia, including, including this region. Um, in terms of developments, this has moved in directions that no one would have been able to foresee just a few years ago. And it's important to stress, since most of what I have to say will be about international affairs, some of, some of which is very tricky, very problematic, very challenging, that first and foremost, this change is about development at the human level. And that's mainly a story about change for the better. It's about how people have been able to take control of and to change, transform their own lives. And if I may say so with reference to uh, my two commentators today, nowhere is that more visible than in China and in Indonesia. Fifty years ago, those two countries were entering one of the darkest periods in their history mainly based on social strife, political strife, and oppression. But look at the two countries today in terms of where they are. Both have gone through transformations that have an enormous significance for this whole region. Indonesia has become the world's biggest Muslim democracy. It is a state that has been moving from strength to strength over the past decade in terms of not just international relations that it's at the core of, but also in terms of its domestic development. China is the envy of the world in terms of economic development and has highlighted many of the issues that needs to be taken forward on a global scale in terms of lifting people out of poverty. So if we compare what's happening today with what happened 50 years ago, you can see the progress that I'm talking about. I think that Asia will be key to global developments in the next generation, if you want to study one particular area in terms of its international affairs, this is to the young people who are here, look at Asia and look at this region in particular. Some of this is, of course, connected to economics. And we'll hear more about that from Danny Kwa and other colleagues later on in the afternoon session. Uh, it is about the economic center of gravity shifting. To me, as an historian, it's important to point out that this is in line with what has been the case for most of human existence. It's really only over the last 100, maybe 120 years that Europe and its North American offshoot has been at the center of global economic developments. Traditionally, that role has belonged to Asia because of its population size, but also because of the trajectory of its historical development. So what we are seeing now is, in a way, a reversion to what the order of things have been for a very, very long time indeed, and therefore should come as no surprise. 
Neither should it come as a surprise that China is at the center of this development. And this is nothing to do with Sinocentrism. This is nothing to do with China's overall cultural role or its central position within the region. It has to do with China's size, and it has to do with the size of China's population. We are not, I think, in our day and time, heading back to where this region was when my last book started in the, in the 18th century uh, towards an uh, old-fashioned form of Sinocentric system. I think we are heading towards a period in which China's interaction with the rest of the region, and hopefully also globally, will expand. But have no doubts about it. China's position is going to be central, and it's going to be vital for what happens here and what happens uh, within the wider region. Now, there are some difficulties and some problems connected with these changes that are taking place in an international sense. And let me just outline some of them. I won't be able to deal with all of the issues that are of significance, but I'll outline some that I think are particularly important so that we can have a free and open discussion about those here. Uh, I will, at the end of my talk, come to this particular region. So I want to put the focus on the international affairs of Southeast Asia and particularly its relationship with China, again, linking up to what Pakistan and uh, Tao Wenjiao will be commenting on uh, later on. Now, one key in terms of the international development of the Eastern Asian region, maybe the key in many ways, at least for the foreseeable future, will be the relationship between China and Japan. Deng Xiaoping, who led China for a very long period of time and was one of the wisest foreign policy makers that I've ever come across, used to say that China cannot rise against Japan. It can only rise with Japan. And I think he was entirely right. I think it is very, very important that the relationship between China and Japan becomes more stable than what it is today, not just for those two countries, and if I may say so, especially for China, which is still the rising power within the region. But this is also important, of course, for the wider region, and it's important for the world. Having the second and third largest economies in the world at odds, as what seems to be the way that we are heading at the moment, is not good for anyone. And it doesn't point in the direction that the outside world would like to see with regard to peace and cooperation within the region. The situation on the Korean Peninsula, as you will know, is also very difficult. I'm among those who tend to underline the signal significance that the resolution to the Korean problems of various sorts that are there will have not just for the Asian region, but for the whole world. Korea is one of the most difficult, intractable, but also potentially dangerous conflicts that we are facing at the moment. And the reduction of tension, including the abolition of nuclear weapons in North Korea, is a key to the future of the region, of the world, but particularly for those countries bordering on Korea in Asia's northeast. For China, one of the key issues in terms of its international development has always been the relationship to the south, has been the relationship to this part of the world. When I first came to China in the late 1970s, I remember a lot of discussion about how China connected to Southeast Asia. And it was mainly a discussion about things that had not developed well 
since the middle part of the 20th century. So in the 1980s and in the 1990s, an enormous amount of work was put in from both sides, both from China and from the Southeast Asian countries, to improve that relationship. And enormous successes were had in the process. There was a tremendous change in the relationship from conflict towards cooperation, towards China and Southeast Asia working together. Over the past five years, I'm sorry to say, I think some of that goodwill in terms of the overall relationships have gone out the window. And it raises some very serious questions about whether the rise of China will mean conflict or opportunities for further cooperation. I think the opportunities are enormous. And again, we'll hear more about that later on today. The economic prospects for a cooperation between China and Southeast Asia have developed very well over the past 25 years, uh, culminating, of course, in the signing of the treaty leading to a free trade zone that can incorporate the Chinese and the Southeast Asian economies on an equal basis. The ability of the two sides to make use of these opportunities is vital. It is through trade, through investment, as the Prime Minister was saying, in terms of open markets, that the future of China and Southeast Asia can be linked in a positive form. But there are also tensions that sometimes can get in the way of these kinds of cooperation, these forms of uh, immediate uh, attempts at linking different regions of the world together. In the relationship between China and the ASEAN countries, this has mainly been tensions over control of sea-based resources with regard to the South China Sea. And let me just conclude with a few remarks uh, in my view of how we can try to approach that particular conflict uh, as an example of how it would be possible to use the knowledge that we have now about international affairs to move more closely to a um, resolution of overall international disputes. What is clear, I think, is that China and the various Southeast Asian countries need to negotiate on questions relating to the South China Sea. Compromises are perfectly possible. This is not the kind of position which is intractable in the sense that the conflict is doomed to go on for a very, very long time. It's easy to see, as my Chinese friends sometimes put this in Beijing, how you could turn this into a win-win situation uh, for, for everyone involved. But in order for that to happen, negotiations are central. They are essential for the road forward. And at the moment, negotiations with the aim of setting up mutual compromises have not been developing well. I think one road towards the future with regard to the South China Sea conflict is to look at negotiations that have already been conducted elsewhere within the terms of the UN Convention on the Law of the Seas, and try to emulate what has been happening, particularly at the opening phase of some of these international negotiations. Um, I know that Pakistan and others have been very interested in this, in terms of looking at examples from elsewhere. This is, in part, what the academic community would be able to provide. Uh, and we have people at LSE who've been working very closely with policymakers in order to develop these kinds of perspectives. 
I also think it is important, and this is a particular, um, of particular significance on the Chinese side, to take the role of the regional organization in this area, the ASEAN organization, more seriously than it does presently in terms of all negotiations. I think it will be very hard to find individual solutions to the South China Sea conflict or indeed other kinds of issues that may come up in the future between the countries of this region and countries elsewhere. This is a positive aspect of what has been happening in Southeast Asia. It is to the enormous advantage of this region and possibly also for its neighbors that there is an integrationist regional organization that actually works quite well and that has an enormous potential for the future. Trying to make use of that organization in order to deal with all kinds of international issues, including those that deal with countries that neighbor the Southeast Asian region, can only be for the positive. I'm also among those who believe that a joint exploration and production in some regions is entirely possible even if agreement has not been reached on dividing lines in legal terms. A lot of experience that we have elsewhere, from the North Sea to the Caribbean to off the coast of West Africa, show that it is indeed possible to start moving towards joint projects that can show the way forward in terms of collaboration on a much wider scale, even if there is no absolute certainty in terms of the widening lines. Now, this will always have to be, I think, a minority phenomenon. But denying, as some people now do, in this region and elsewhere that it's possible is, in my view, entirely wrong. I also think it's important to underline how the region, how China, how other powers deal with the role of the United States with regard to this conflict and also in the much broader sense of what is happening internationally. The role of the United States, of course, should be both to stabilize the situation in the region and to further negotiations for solutions that would be to the benefit of the region and the international community as a whole. But of course, the American role could also turn in a more negative direction. The ASEAN countries are, as all countries, free to choose their own security arrangements, and they have done so wisely now for more than two generations. I do think it is important, though, and particularly with regard to the future role of the United States within the Eastern Asian region in general, that these security arrangements have to be explicit and as far as possible done within existing regional frameworks. That is the only way in which these kinds of arrangements can work. I think the ASEAN countries have to realize that in some cases, some self-imposed limitations with regard to bases, with regard to security treaties, particularly with the United States, will help build future relations both within the region itself and with its neighbors, including, including China. First and foremost, though, and I'll end on this note, China needs to be seen as a supporter of regional integration rather than the opposite. China's future in Southeast Asia is linked to ASEAN as an organization, rather than just to the individual countries that in so many cases the Chinese government are trying to deal with in terms of the negotiation strategy. This is about integration on a much wider scale 
than what just has to do with Southeast Asia itself. And this, to me, is the most important aspect of what can be achieved. If it is possible to link other countries in, not just China, but other countries within the Eastern Asian region, but also possibly towards South Asia, into the same kind of framework and ideas that has helped build ASEAN now over two generations, I think a lot can be accomplished. Because this is not just about organization. It is about the concepts of cooperation that go into it. And that, I think, will perhaps be the most important lesson in terms of international affairs that can go from this region to the rest of the world. Thank you very much. Thank you, you, Arnie. And I think one of the points that Arnie makes is China is at the center. Now, is it for better or for worse? So, with that provocative introduction, can I ask Professor Tao to come and make his comments, please? Here? Okay. Well, uh, thank you, uh, Professor uh, Cajon and the Professor Westar to invite me for, uh, to uh, uh, participate in this very important and interesting forum. Uh, my old friend, uh, Anne raised a lot of questions, a number of questions, uh, generally about China's relations with uh, uh, neighboring countries. Uh, I don't know whether I can answer all these questions, <laughs> but I will make a response uh, uh, as much as possible. First, the Sino-Japanese relations. I think there are two outstanding issues in the relationship between China and Japan. One is the Diaoyu Islands issue. One is a historical issue. With the Diaoyu Islands issue, you know, when China and Japan normalized their relations in 1972, uh, and when uh, the two countries concluded the peace uh, treaty in 1978, there's a consensus between China and Japan. You know, we share that issue. Uh, But now, the old consensus was broken. It was broken by Japan, by Japan's so-called naturalization of the Senkaku Islands. And now both Chinese and Japan are patrolling within the 12 miles of the Diaoyu Islands. Both were patrolling. If the time for final solution of the territorial issue is not ripe yet, then my suggestion would be to reach a new consensus. We share that issue. But that new consensus must reflect the fact that this is a controversial territory. Then we can share that China and Japan are number two, number three, or the largest economies. We have a deep interdependence between ourselves, actually, uh, as, uh, uh, as I just said, when Deng Xiaoping just launched the reform and openness, he first visited Japan. And after visiting Japan, he said, now I, reali- I realized what was the modernization. Mm. Yeah, so we, we have to continue to cooperate economically. And with the historical uh, uh, factor, I think you know, Japan should stick to the uh, past past statement about the war crime, about the uh, 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 sex slavery uh, issue, etc. 
and the Japanese leaders, especially Prime Minister, should stop visiting Yasukuni Shrine. That will be fine. Actually, some of Japanese relations between 2006 and 2011 were actually were quite good. And I was joined as a joint uh, joined the historical research with Japanese scholars. Mm. Yeah. Uh, with the Korean issue, yes, it is, uh, uh, it is a dangerous place, but uh, the, Chinese, the Chinese government has made several times the announcement. We would not let anyone to create any trouble or any war on China's border. <laughs> and in, in November... 2011, the Chinese and the Russia joined, uh, 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 released a joint statement. We will never allow the war break out on the Korean Peninsula again. So actually, I'm not very much afraid of the Korea. I think Korea's situation is no more, more or less under control. Because all the countries, all the big powers, uh, United States, China, Russia, of, of course, Japan do not want the, uh, the war on the Korean, Korean Peninsula. Uh, the more complicated issue, of course, is the China's relationship with the ASEAN countries. Yes. Well, uh, in the past 20 plus years, China implemented a good neighborliness policy towards uh, its neighbors, and uh, this was so quite successful. And China uh, uh, got a lot of uh, benefits from that uh, good neighborliness policy. And China will continue to do so. So uh, we have uh, territorial and the maritime uh, issues, disputes with some of the ASEAN countries, not with all of them. Yeah. But those disputes are not the, are not the all relationship with those countries. For instance, we with the disputes with with Vietnam, we will have a dispute with the Philippines. But this is not the whole overall Sino-Vietnamese relationship. It's not the overall Sino-Philippine relationship. And even we have uh, some disputes, we can still cooperate. You know, uh, when Premier Li Keqiang visited Vietnam last year, the two governments agreed to cooperate uh, in the three big areas, in land, on sea, and in finance. And uh, when President Xi Jinping uh, made a telephone call to the Vietnamese party secretary, the two leaders confirmed the, their cooperations. So uh, this is, uh, of course, outstanding issue, and uh, today it catches a lot of uh, uh, media, media attention. But I think it's not the... It's not the total picture of China's relationship with ASEAN countries. While, on the contrary, uh, Chinese leaders in recent years put forward a new concept, so-called community of a common destiny. Because China and the surrounding countries are so interdependent uh, between themselves. China is number one trade partner and economic partner of ASEAN countries. Of course, also Japan and Korea. Yeah. And development is the common goal of, of all, all of us. Yeah. And the cooperation. We, we have been cooperating for many years, and cooperation uh, 
produce a lot of benefits to all of us, and we will continue cooperation. And today, after 30 plus years of uh, development, China has uh, uh, more strengths to uh, provide. Uh, we will have, uh, for instance, financial support and also technological support. Uh, so we can have uh, uh, more way, more channels to cooperate. And the last year, President Xi Jinping put forward the so-called circular economic belt and maritime circular road. So we want to expand cooperation between China and other countries, including ASEAN countries. And of course, we still have still have differences. Those differences we can through dialogue, consultation. And peaceful negotiation, and now I think China and other countries are consulting, are discussing about COC. Yeah, and of course the the, the process is uh, is not very not very smooth, but the process is moving. Yeah, so so I'm not that pessimistic. Yeah, it may, the uh, the issue was left by by the history when I was a small kid. Uh, in the primary school, I learned geography, and uh, I began to learn that uh, the uh, uh, islands in South China Sea belong to China. That that was in 1940s, you know. Yeah. So 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 every Chinese, every Chinese since the since yeah since the uh, uh, since they are very 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 young believed that the uh, islands in South China Sea belong to China. So it is it is difficult, difficult, but we also recognize that other countries also have territorial claimants, and we 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 are ready. We are, we agree to negotiate with them directly with those direct claimants. Yeah. So I think these differences should not become an obstacle in our cooperation. I stop here. Oh, I, I, I have one thing to add. That is uh, uh, Sino-American relations. Yeah, because I personally is an expert on Sino-American relations, and Sino-American relations are so important to to Asia's future. Uh, last June, President Xi Jinping met with President Obama in Sunnylands, California, and that meeting uh, was really unusual in the breadth and length of the discussion. Yeah, the two leaders made a firm commitment. To uh, building a new type of a major power relationship, and uh, Xi Jinping summarized that new type of relationship in three terms: one, no conflict, no confrontation; the other, uh, mutual respect; and then, uh, win-win cooperation. Here, I would like to offer uh, my uh, brief uh, understanding of the, these three principles. Uh, no conflict, no confrontation. You know, in the past 30-plus years, China uh, tried hard to integrate itself into the world community. And the United States in general did not reject China's integration into the present regime. So uh, China got tremendous development, and the United States also got benefit from China's integration into the world community. So uh, that's why uh, President George W. Bush's uh, Deputy Secretary Z- Bob Zelik uh, can say China uh, should be the responsible stakeholder of the present regime. Yeah, 
And China did that, and China will continue to do so. So uh, we we had no conflict and confrontation between China and the U.S. So our relationship actually today is a new type of major power relationship, because this relationship was different from Britain-German relationship before World War One, different from U.S.-Japan relationship before before Pearl Harbor. Different from U.S.-Soviet Union relationship during the Cold War, but why should we uh, advance the new concept at present? Because of a lot of changes in the U.S., in China, and also in the world situation. And one change is that the gap between U.S. and China is very much narrowed. Now China is number two、uh, economy in the world, and probably. Uh, under Xi and Li, China will catch up to the United States in total GDP. So the、uh, American people are not prepared to accept that kind of a China. So you know, American people's feeling、uh, began to change. So so we we, we should emphasize that. And uh, uh, for the mutual、uh, respect, I think here means two things. One is respect for each other's. Uh, social system and ideology. The other is respect for、uh, core interests.、Uh, since President Nixon's visit in early 1970s, I think this,、uh, actually China and the U.S. have already reached a tacit consensus. That is,、uh, China and the U.S.、Uh, do not like each other's uh, s- uh, system and ideology very much. Yeah,、uh, but the others.、Uh, System and ideology, ideology will be there indefinitely, and each side has little to do to influence the other's uh, uh, ideology and social system. Yeah, so th- this、uh, consensus I think exists even today. Although we still have differences over human rights, but you can see、uh, this is just one.、Uh, this is just one issues in. in Uh, comprehensive Sino-American relations. So I, I, I'm using out my time. I'll stop here. Thank you. Okay. <clears throat> Thank you very much,、uh, Professor. <laughs> well, I'm sure there'll be questions、uh, and issues on China、uh, arising from both Arnie's points and, and Professor Tao's points for later.、Uh, we reserve it for later. And one of the other points that uh, uh, has been made by Arnie. Is、uh, on ASEAN and the region and Indonesia.、Uh, the point is,、uh, ASEAN must come through,、hmm? must come good. It's almost like a difficult childbirth. You know, it hasn't really sort of、uh, expressed itself、uh, in, in, in an effective way as、uh, as as the other countries、uh, maneuver、uh, and ha- you know bring issues to it. So, I think Pak Hasan、uh, Wirayuda. Uh, is well placed as former foreign minister of Indonesia and and still advisor、uh, to the president、uh, on foreign policy to bring us some perspectives、uh, to the issue that we are discussing uh, uh, from the Indonesian experience and how Indonesia sees ASEAN, you know, playing its role and and being more effective in negotiating with the big powers、uh, in our part of the world. Asan. Thank you, Tansri. <clears throat> First of all, I'd like to <laughs> like to thank the 
LSE Asia Forum for inviting me to be panelist of the sessions. I'm pleased to be here with uh, Professor Ann Westad, a good friend, and Tansri Datuk uh, Majid, Munir Majid, which I've been knowing for some years by now. I'm not an LSE graduate myself, but I can claim that I'm a member of LSE as my wife has graduated from LSE and hopefully my son soon complete his PhD uh, at the LSE. So I'm pleased for that matter to join uh, the sessions. Um, I'm trying to approach uh, the problems that we are facing in these regions from the perspectives of the process of integrations, uh, which is part of the theme of this conference. Uh, And I would argue that the situation that we are witnessing in these regions of East Asia is a product of an imbalanced concept of integrations, of a community building. I said imbalance because in the past 10 years, the community building process has been heavily economics and neglecting political and security uh, cooperations or integrations. You may recall that the idea for this region to establish an ASEAN, rather an East Asian community, was initiated in 1997. Uh, And it is a byproduct of ASEAN dialogue process. The beauty of ASEAN is not that ASEAN promote uh, integrations within 10 Southeast Asian family of nations, but ASEAN that has been very active in reaching out ASEAN as a bridge builder, including to uh, our partners in Northeast Asia, China, Japan, and Korea. We call them our plus three partners. But ASEAN that is playing a very important role because of those three partners, we cannot expect that they are, uh, they can have they, 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 are, they can play a role, important role as a leading uh, as leaders in the process because of the heavy historical baggage that would not allow them to uh, lead the process. That's why their dependence on ASEANs. It was in 1997 at the ASEAN Plus 3 process that the idea to establish an ASEAN, rather an East Asian community, was explored. Uh, the crucial issue was uh, what a, a kind of vehicles that we are going to develop, and this is this was mainly considered uh, an Asian East Asian summit uh, to be the main vehicle. But the crucial issue was 
well, uh, what are the memberships? Uh, most of the 13 countries argued that EAS, East Asia Summit, should be limited to uh, 13 countries. Indonesia was the one who argued that it should be balanced and inclusive. Uh, East Asia Summit should, more, should not be defined in terms of geographical limitations, comprising of Northeast Asian and Southeast Asian countries, but also should include India, Australia, New Ze- and New Zealand. Why uh, uh, need to have a balance? Because while China and others labeled China's progress in the past 30, 20 years as peaceful rise, but we make questions how long China remains peaceful if one day, now China is the second largest uh, economy in the world, but also they have more money to spend on uh, arms uh, built up, military built up. Uh, we can anticipate that China, which one day becomes more restless, to use the uh, Arnie's uh, term, but uh, China that is more assertive, if not aggressive, in dealing with some issues they were facing in North China Sea as well as South China Sea. And in fact, uh, as East Asia Summit uh, held here in Kuala Lumpur for the first time in 2005, it was comprising of 16. Uh, but uh, they are still, since then, continuing or rather a competing concept what, on what is called East Asia. Uh, on certain issues like uh, the establishment of Chiang Mai Initiative Multilateralisms, which is an arrangement for uh, countries of the region to help each other in facing financial, uh, potential financial crisis, it is strictly limited to 13 meaning 10 ASEAN countries plus China, Japan, and Korea, and Australia, India, New Zealand are excluded. Uh, but on others, uh, like on the prospect, or like on, on ASEAN initiative, ASEAN plus one initiative on free trade areas, it is 16. And likewise, on uh, lately uh, decided by our leaders on RCEP, Regional Economic uh, Partnerships, it is uh, comprising of 16 countries. More confusing, perhaps, when East Asia Summit in 2011 was expanded to uh, 18 by adding the United States and Russia uh, as members. Uh, President Obama at the Bali Summit in 2011 said that to the United States, East Asia Summit is nothing but uh, a forum of dialogue on political security and strategic issue, leaving China being number one uh, economic partners of countries in the regions uh, would lead the current uh, process toward an East Asia-wide, uh, some 16 countries, uh, free trade areas. Uh, on the other hand, uh, America would lead the process of TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnerships. It, it is interesting to note that some six ASEAN countries are joining TPP, while at the same time, of course, being ASEAN members, uh, they are also uh, 
active participants of the current process of the regional uh, economic partnerships uh, in Asia. Asia. Uh, so, I said it, uh, the, the integration process was heavily economics. There's confusing terms. You, you, may, you may know that we have ASEAN plus one, ASEAN plus three, ASEAN plus six, and ASEAN plus uh, six doesn't mean uh, 16 because ASEAN wish to speak as one, as one unit. Uh, and and uh, that's why I said uh, mathematically it's confusing when about talk of this, about the terms that we are used in these regions. But uh, of course, uh, as a result of this cooperation, you will see East Asia that is very dynamic economically, East Asia that is uh, increasingly seen as the, uh, cent- uh, the, 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 cent- uh, the region of the century, East Asia, and for that matter, Asia-Pacific as the center of gravity of the world, mainly, of course, from the economic perspectives. And, in fact, we send a confusing signal to the rest of the world by releasing news about the uh, situations or tensions in Northeast and South China Sea. And to me, it is because so far we do not talk much on the political and security uh, sides of the process of integrations. Uh, I think this region can learn from what's happened in Europe in the midst of the uh, Cold War, uh, in particular the uh, Conference on Security, uh, CSCE, I mean, uh, in which they were able to establish a kind of uh, rule of good conduct and uh, means of peaceful conflict resolutions. Here, uh, we are witnessing that the fact we are not able to respond adequately to the uh, increasing needs for us to respond peacefully uh, and rather, uh, for that matter, uh, threat and tensions. Uh, I believe that and strongly believe that uh, uh, parties on, on the current t- tension and conflict overlapping conflict on land and maritime space uh, in North East and South East and South East, South China Sea should go back to the path of dialogue. Because as we have shown in the past, when Indonesia initiated uh, the uh, workshop on managing uh, conf- potential conflict in South China Sea, we were able to uh, gradually at least uh, develop uh, more uh, Corporations leading to the, the adoptions of 2002 Declaration on the Conduct of Parties. So when I received, for example, a delegation from China in 2010, I was no longer foreign minister, and, and they, they, they honestly asked whether China's neighbors in this region felt that China is becoming more assertive. I said yes. And in the end, they asked, so what would be your advice? And I said, go back to the path of dialogue. And I think this is what's been absent 
we've been complacent since the adoption of 2002 Declaration on the Conduct of Parties, ASEAN China Conduct of uh, Declaration on the Conduct of, of Parties in the South China Sea. And at the same time, I think it's time for East Asia Summit to rethink after, 15, after 10 years, perhaps to elevate its cooperations from a rather loose leaders-led process into more structured organizations uh, with secretariat in which political and security cooperation should be it's, it's also uh, an important agenda to balance with its economic uh, cooperation. I thank you very much. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Pahasan. Uh, let me begin this uh, discussion session, Q&A session, yeah, by uh, sort of trying uh, to, to identify uh, the big issues, the strategic issues. Now, clearly, uh, the strategic issues, are whether they express themselves in, in, in competition or in conflict or cooperation, uh, quite essentially, there are issues that have a are made in Asia issues, uh, made in Asia issues. Uh, and they are also because of Asia issues. Uh, and external parties obviously come in uh, uh, to, to crowd out uh, Asia uh, in the because of Asia issues. And then the issues are also because of history issues. In so far as China is concerned, there's so much history that's brought to the table. And there's a lot of Chinese history that goes back. And if a lot of it is brought to the table, the question is how much of it is going to be contemporaneously applied mm. from its historical depth and history. And in international law, generally, uh, history per se is not recognized as an, a fact of law. And this is one of the problems in the South China Sea. So, I mean, Arnie, uh, Professor Tao, you know, you brought up history, whether recent or ancient, in respect of Japan or in respect of South China Sea. Now, how is it going to express itself today in a contemporaneous world? And insofar as ASEAN is concerned, there's always it's doing something, creating something new, plusing everything, plus, plus, plus. But it must deliver in terms of conflict resolution, in terms of negotiation. It must speak more effectively as one voice if it is going to be effective. Or Indonesia must take the lead as being the largest country. So essentially, that's essentially the things that we have to think about. And so on that note, you know, can I invite uh, the first question? Just wait uh, for, your, for the mic, please. Uh, uh, Kishore Mabubani. <laughs> he doesn't need to identify himself. I, I've identified him for you. Uh, thank you. Since my question is for Professor Tao, I should also add that I'm also Dean of the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at the National University of Singapore. Now, Professor Tao, I agree with you that under the leadership of uh, President Xi Jinping and Premier Li Keqiang, China will develop the number one economy in the world. I agree with that. But when China becomes the number one economy in the world, the, f the big question the world will ask, how will China behave when it becomes number one? And specifically, if you look at what America and the West have done, they created a global multilateral architecture that benefited the West and benefited the rest of the world, like the United Nations, IMF, World Trade Organization. 
So my question to you, Professor Tao is, when China becomes number one, what kind of global leadership will China provide? Will you support the UN? Will you keep the IMF? Will you strengthen the WTO? Or will you start all over again? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, uh, here we have to make distinction. China's number one is very much different from U.S. number one. U.S. number one is a comprehensive strength, economic, military, etc. China's number one is just the GDP, just the total economy. While China still have a lot of issues, you know, and the GDP per capita is still very, very low maybe just uh, 50 something or like, like, like this. And the China's uh, military is uh, far behind the United States. Yeah. Uh, of course, China should uh, uh, take more responsibility. As, uh, uh, as we say, the, with power comes responsibility. China should, more, should provide more uh, public goods to the international uh, world. But of course, China, China will not change its present regime. Uh, the United Nations will be there, WTO will be there, uh, IMF will be there, World Bank will be there. So we, we, ha- we have nothing to, to be afraid of. But of course, we, we will push forward for kind of a reform of, of these uh, international structures and institutions. So we, we understand quite well. Even China became number one in total GDP. Uh, China is still is still a developing country. And uh, we still have a lot of issues to deal uh, with the degradation of the uh, environment. Uh, we, we, today, maybe in Beijing, it's a smoggy day. Yeah. And uh, we, we have a uh, uh, lack of uh, natural resources. Uh, we have uh, uh, inequality of uh, urban rural area, as uh, yesterday uh, it mentioned. The urbanization is still a long, long way to go. Yeah. And uh, our financial liberalization is also a long, long way to go. So we still have a lot of issues to, to deal with. Nothing to be afraid of. Yes, Ali. That was a very good question from Kishore and a very good answer from Tao Wenjiao, I, I told. I, I share Professor Tao's view that China is not a revisionist power. It is not out to undo the global system the way it has developed on the first British and then American hegemony. The problem is rather the opposite, I find, that China is being a little bit too comfortable within the system that has been set up, that it is not willing to provide global or in some cases even regional leadership for the kind of negotiations that need to be had on a broader international scale. It seems to me that very often what the Chinese leadership is after is not to try to change anything in terms of global or regional structures, but it's just to get more for China within the structures that exist at the moment. That may be good for China, but it's not particularly good for the kind of international leadership that we need, particularly with the United States, I believe, over a long period of time, and again, I agree with uh, Professor Tao on this, probably playing less of a role in terms of leadership at the international level than what it's done for the past generation. So what we need from China is, is more leadership, getting more stuck in on the, on the key issues that are there in regional terms, but also in, also in global terms. And that's what I hope we will see under, under Xi Jinping's leadership. Yes, please, I see the gentleman there. Uh, can you wait for the mic to come? Yeah. Uh, second row. 
Sorry, the third row. <laughs> Thank you. I just want to follow up on that statement you said. Please identify what, yourself. Uh, Ponchanental area. What kind of leadership would you like China should have globally and regionally? Second question I want to ask is, uh, well, the Philippines has officially put the uh, South China question before the UNCLOS. Will that create greater uncertainty or greater certainty on this issue? When, where would ASEAN play a role in that context? Thank you. Arnie. Yeah. Well, the others may wish to comment on this as well. What kind of leadership is needed from China? Well, first and foremost, leadership on the big issues that affect us all on a global stage. Issues such as climate change, such as the international economic order, such as financial regulations on an international and global scale. Those are the big challenges. But then there are also security challenges of a more specific kind when China's leadership is, is needed. Now, it's easy from the Chinese point of view to say you know, what's happening in the Middle East doesn't really affect us, or it only affects us tangentially. And China was probably right in saying so for a very long time. They're not right in saying that today. Um, this is not the part of the world that can be left to the United States and China can opt out of. China needs to take its own positions, not just as a reflection of the overall Sino-American relationship or China's growing relationship with Russia, but in terms of what the Chinese want to achieve, not just for China itself, but in terms of stability, in terms of negotiations, in terms of mediation roles that are taken, that are taken internationally. In order to do that, China needs to start within its own wider region. And this is why what is happening now with regard to the Korean Peninsula, in the relationship with Japan, and maybe first and foremost, as both the other speakers underlined, with regard to Southeast Asia, sends a signal about how China is going to behave when it has truly risen, going back to Kishore's question. So this is important, not just in terms of what is happening now. It is very important in terms of how China will be, will be seen for the future. Then very, very briefly on uh, the negotiation process. I think the best proposal that is on the table at the moment is the one that the Indonesian government has put forward about returning to an extended code of conduct in terms of how uh, the South China Sea conflict is going to be handled. I think taking that as a starting point, avoiding the kind of skirmishes that have been taking place far too often and could easily flare up into low-scale military conflict. We are not very far away from that at the moment. And that is the way to go now. But that is just a stepping stone, as Hassan pointed out, to much broader negotiations that need to be had. But what we need to do first is to stabilize the situation that is there now, which is potentially very unstable, and then to move on to negotiations. Thank you. Hassan. On whether or not uh, unclose the UN Convention on the Law of the Secret, certainty or uncertainty <coughs> with regard to relations among countries in the regions, uh, in particular in dealing with uh, the uh, maritime issues. Uh, <clears throat> actually, the 1982 Law of the Convention provides certainty uh, in terms of relations among states on matters of 
uh, see uh, in the world. The, it creates uncertainty, not by the, by the unclose itself, by the loose interpretations of states with regard to the norms, uh, expansive norms which was negotiated for over than 25 years. For example, uh, the unclose uh, practically uh, outlawed, if not recognize the historic claims in these regions uh, during uh, throughout the uh, negotiation process Philippines claims an expanse of water under 1848 uh, treaty between the United States and uh, Spain but it was rejected uh, many countries uh, claims for more than 400 miles of fishing area was rejected. And the law of the sea creates certainty on the maximum limit of territorial sea, the exclusive economic zones, and the continental south. But here, as we have heard, arguments that China claims some parts of or islands or rocks in North China Sea as well as the South China Sea uh, based on the history, which is difficult to accept. Uh, I, I will, I'll share with you that in 1980, and rather 2009, Indonesian civilian fishing patrols uh, arrested seven or eight uh, Chinese fishing vessels, and China uh, strongly uh, protested, and they claimed that uh, Chinese fishing boats were fishing in what they term traditional fishing area. Law of the Sea doesn't have any provision on traditional fishing area. Yes, it has on traditional fishing rights, but by saying and arguing that they were fishing in that tradition, their traditional fishing area, it's nothing but historical claims which are not there at the UN uh, Convention on the Law of the Sea. Uh, but to me, more than just a question of claims and counterclaims, actually, UNCLOS provides uh, mechanisms. There is an international tribunal on the Law of the Sea, and, and actually the Philippines uh, last year submitted their case to the, to the ITLOS, Hamburg-based court, and was rejected by China. But likewise, yesterday or two days ago, Philippines initiated to refer the case to the International Tribunal in The Hague, again rejected by China. By this, we, I mean that there was no habit in these regions of peaceful settlement of disputes, be they negotiations or third-party mediations or adjudications. Actually, China and countries in the region East Asia can learn from the experience of uh, ASEAN. Uh, Indonesia and Malaysia were not party to the compulsory jurisdictions on, of, of the ICJ, but when we have a case of Sipadan, tiny Sipadan and Ligitan, our leaders, Dan Soharto and Pak Mahathir, Dato' Mahathir said that uh, we should not inherit this conflict 
it's a problem to the future generation. That's why they agreed to refer the case under special agreement to the International Court of Justice. Likewise, dispute between Singapore and Malaysia. And this is what I mean that uh, the East Asia uh, Summit as a forum uh, should not only talk about uh, the uh, economic and economic and trade and what else, but also should discuss this uh, more political and security aspect. Thank you very much. Would you like to say something, Professor Tao? Well, uh, I think... Yeah, this is a very concrete question, yeah, and, uh, and uh, we may, sometimes we may have a special conference to go into all these details. <laughs> okay. Uh, Professor Danny Kwa. Thank you. Thank you. I wonder if the panel feels that there has sometimes been too much of an attempt to straightjacket discussion of our international and regional relations in Asia, surrounding China in particular. When you think about three of these dimensions that we have discussed today, the Sino-Japan relation, to take that to begin, I happened to be in Beijing at the time of the worst of the senkaku Diaoyu dispute. And there, what I observed was China's government actually working very hard to calm down agitation among its people. People in Beijing were on the verge of attacking Japanese cars, Japanese restaurants. And I think all of us agree that China's government did the right thing to try and dampen the enthusiasm for worsening the situation. And that seems to be following Professor Tao's statement about how this is very much an important dimension in which we need to think about Sino-Japan relations. That distinction between what the government did and what the people wanted is actually quite important. Now, in contrast, when we think about Sino-U.S. relations, the issues are much more bread and butter. They have to do with American, the American people feeling that China has stolen all our jobs. It's destroyed our industrial landscape. Something must be done. And how the U.S. government responds to that will be very different from how China's government responded to China's people's agitation over the Senkaku Islands. And then thirdly, the third arrow of this discussion, the Sino-ASEAN relations, there, an uncharitable interpretation is that this is nothing more than a land grab for natural resources from all sides, and that there are riches there to be had, we need to exploit them, and somebody wants to be there first. And it seems to me that here, the, the, the scenario is completely different from the Sino-Japan, Sino-US discussion. Because here there's real room for collaboration and joint production. Thank you. So a comment, uh, an over-obsession with uh, China's uh, central role, need to consider also you know, the bigger uh, issues and the bigger approaches that China makes and not you know, be too focused on, on the specifics alone. Uh, Marty? Yeah, I basically agree with you, Danny. I think and this has to be seen within the broader frameworks that we talked about earlier on. It also has to be understood in terms of change. I mean, all of this is happening, as you know better than anyone, within global processes of change that are going to have a tremendous impact on what this region looks like a generation from now. So, you know, in order to understand what is going on within international affairs, we have to look at the world as a whole. We have to go beyond, as Hassan was saying, we have to go beyond what is purely 
international affairs or diplomatic. And I think at LSE we've done a fairly good job of pushing in that direction, I mean, looking at this at the, at the global level. I, I entirely agree with regard to the need from a government perspective to contain, to curtail nationalist excess within their own populations. I think, uh, and I think my good friend Tawa Jia would agree with me on that, that the Chinese government's record on that is mixed. I mean, there have been cases in which the Chinese government has been doing a fairly good job in making sure that uh, nationalist agitation do not go overboard and threaten relations with other countries. But there are also problems, some of which are historical, that come out of China's past in terms of how China's communist government has handled the nationalist issue and tried to mobilize it for its own purposes. Uh, actually, on this, China is not all that different from the rest of the wider region. And I think it's important to realize that. Uh, one of the reasons why Eastern Asia is not heading back towards a Sinocentric system a la mid-Qing, you know, mid-18th century, is that Chinese nationalism in its modern form comes up against a host of nationalisms elsewhere that are equally intense and equally, you know, well-based in terms of the views of the population and what China's own nationalism is. Uh, now, this not, does not necessarily predict conflict, but it certainly indicates as my co-discussants were saying, that one has to be very careful in how these kinds of conflicts are managed. Well, uh, there are differences between China and the United States towards uh, the Diaoyu Islands issue. Mm. Uh, U.S. Uh, your Secretary of State, uh, Defense Secretary, said again and again, you know, because, uh, 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 because the Diaoyu Islands is not uh, administrated by Japan, so the U.S.-Japan military alliance is applicable to Diaoyu Islands. That means if there's a, a military conflict between China and Japan, then U.S. Uh, as an ally of Japan would uh, assist Japan to protect the Diaoyu Islands. While China said uh, U.S. is not the third party of the dispute. Uh, U.S. should not involve the U.S.-Japan military alliance into this uh, uh, territorial dispute between China and Japan. So let us do our dispute by ourselves. Well, with regard to the South China Sea, we also have some differences. The U.S. position is to Asianization and internationalization of the uh, disputes, maritime disputes and, uh, between China and other, uh, some ASEAN countries. While China's position is uh, this is uh, uh, disputes between China and direct claimants. So the disputes should be solved through the peaceful negotiation between China and direct claimants. So we have uh, disputes between China and the United States in these two issues. And uh, I think this is uh, probably a very big issue between China and the United States because, uh, as I just mentioned, the a new type of great power relationship does not change the basic character of Sino-American relations. That means our relationship is still a relationship of a cooperation and a competition. While in the following decades, not just the decade probably, the major, confront, major uh, competition between China and the United States probably comes from the Western Pacific. The United States does not want China to challenge U.S. supremacy in Western Pacific. 
And some American scholars even said to us, if China said to the U.S., Yo, we will not challenge your supremacy in Western Pacific, then China and U.S. can, can, can be harmonious between themselves. Because, because in the Asia continent, the United States recognized China's dominant position. While in the Western Pacific, China cannot challenge U.S. supremacy. So I think this is an issue uh, for us to deal with probably for the next decades, not just one decade. So it's a long, long issue. All right, we have, we have time for one final question or comment, if any. Yes, please. Uh, on the far right here. Front row, far right. Please identify yourself and ask a question. Hi, uh, Jun Xiang from uh, University of Malaya. I have a question regarding China's military spending. Uh, as the following media's portrayal, the uh, military spending has more than doubled uh, over the last decade, and some analysts estimate that uh, China will have a military uh, budget in 2015 larger than all major Asian economies combined. Now, my question for uh, Professor Tao and also uh, Professor uh, Westert, West uh, is, uh, is this increase in military budget a natural occurring phenomenon for a growing country like China? Or is it due to a specific consequence uh, because of the regional conflict uh, due to a territorial dispute? And secondly, uh, will this increase in military spending puts additional pressure on the foreign government and uh, snowball into this awkward situation uh, in between uh, these foreign governments? Thank you. Thank you. Professor Tao, please. Oh, well, the yes. In the past decade, yeah. China's military budget uh, uh, doubled. Uh, but, you know, uh, there's a background because in the 1990s, we had a very little military budget increase. As Deng Xiaoping said, the military has to be patient. So at that time, <laughs> the military actually was very, very patient. So China's military was very much behind China's economic development. So in this, uh, in this century, uh, we, we, we increased our military spending uh, because of a lot of uh, reasons, because we improved the, uh, our military's living standards and also uh, with some uh, new weapon systems, etc. Et China's military should be uh, corresponding to China's size, uh, territorial size, China's uh, maritime situ- situation, China's uh, population, yeah. uh, because China is uh, such a large country. Yeah. But uh, at present, China's military budget is still accounts for just the 2% of China's GDP, while in the United States, it's more than 4%. So if you compare China's military budget with other countries, it's, it's, it's not very outstanding. But this military budget increase is not uh, you know, targeted for, for instance, China's difference with Japan or with ASEAN countries. Even without such kind of a disputes, China still has to increase its military budget. Arnie. I'm not particularly concerned with the size of China's military budget. I mean, I think the Chinese probably could spend their money more wisely on, on other things than spending it on, on military equipment, but that's, that's their decision. I am concerned with how China uses its military potential over time. 
which is quite another matter. I mean, and this is, again, as Professor Tao said earlier on, this is interlinked with the different kinds of situations that China will be facing, particularly in its region. It would be extremely detrimental to China's future position with regard to Eastern Asia as a whole if China started throwing its military weight around. Now, if we look at this at the global level, however, it is important to underline what Tao Wajiao just underlined at the end. The idea which is prevalent in a lot of places, including I've seen in some press commentary in this part of the world, that China is catching up with the United States in terms of military potential is almost exactly wrong. It's almost the other way around. China is falling further and further behind the United States, both in terms of military spending, but also probably in terms of overall military capabilities. And the reason for that goes with the figures that we have. The United States is still outspending China vastly in terms of what is uh, going into military armaments. And the difference is not decreasing, it's increasing. Um, and, of course, this will have very significant impact for what the future is, is going to look like. Now, I'm not sure, as I said at the start of this comment, whether that will be overall to the American advantage in terms of the overall economy, in terms of where the United States needs to concentrate its resources as its share of the global economy is shrinking. Well, thank you very much. Uh, <clears throat> ladies and gentlemen, we, we come uh, uh, to the end of this first session. And uh, in a sense, China is already number one. We've been discussing China most of this morning. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and uh, obviously because, as Arnie said in his uh, address, it is at the center of the region. And the American role as number two in the region <laughs> is to be stabilizer as number one and number two. And therefore, uh, China's role is the most critical for the region. It finds expression in many disputes and issues that are outstanding, and China has to demonstrate uh, a kind of leadership to solve these disputes to show that it can be a real leader in the region. And that's something uh, that everyone hopes can happen. And we hope, you know, situations do not give rise to perceptions of fear for China. Situations even like the MH370 incident and the kind of populist diplomacy uh, that uh, became evident is something was, that was quite uh, remarkable and, and and, and scary. And if it's, that's the kind of leadership that China is going to show, there'll be a lot of fear about how China would behave in the future over bigger issues. But let's hope that the negotiation, uh, talks and so on, will result in uh, peaceful resolution of many of these outstanding issues, whether uh, based on history or, or, or other things. And I think uh, in doing so, Regional states have to be more assertive as well of their rights and better organized and more expressive. And in ASEAN, we need to find that greater expression and greater assertion. And we need a leadership as well in ASEAN, which can only come from Indonesia and uh, perhaps from the five uh, founder members of ASEAN in total. And if there is greater dynamism and engagement 
there might be a better result. And there's a better understanding by the United States that regional powers are playing their part, and then the US can be this stabilizer that uh, Arnie says the role that it should play. So, ladies and gentlemen, I think uh, we have set a scene, and I'd like uh, you to join me in uh, thanking our speakers this morning, and thank you for your participation as well. <laughs>